Hi, it's Brendan here. We've got a really exciting episode coming up for you today. Joanna Williams, author of the brilliant new book, How Woke One, joined me live on Zoom with an audience of spiked supporters. How Woke One is out now. You can order your copy today by going to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. And if you never want to miss any of our live events in the future, then sign up to become a Spiked supporter today. Spiked supporters always get early bird access and discounted tickets to every event we put on. And you'll be able to claim a whole range of other perks too. Become a Spiked supporter today or find out more by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this very special live recording of the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my wonderful guest, Joanna Williams. Joanna will be familiar to all of you, I have no doubt. She is, of course, a columnist for Spiked. She also writes for loads and loads of other publications. She is the author of How Woke One, which is the first book from Spike's partnership with John Wilkes Publishing, the first of many, we hope. We have now taken a leap into book publishing, and we are thrilled that the first book is this brilliant work by Joanna on an issue that we are all thinking about and talking about and wondering about, which is what is wokeness? How the hell do we defeat it? Where did it come from? Where is it going? So all of those questions and more are tackled in Joanna's book. And I want to touch on some of them with Joanna tonight. Joanna, welcome to the show. I'm absolutely delighted to be with you. Thank you, Brendan. And um, before we kick off, I do just want to say a really big thank you to Spiked. Uh, everyone at Spiked for all their help with getting the book to completion. It really would not have happened without the help of Tom and Viv and, and everyone. So thank you, Spiked. Thanks, Joe. So let's kick off with, I want to kick off with that actually with something that's happened quite recently. Uh, so it's happened just a few days before this, uh, this podcast is being recorded, which is the stand-in for women protest in Manchester, where a group of women and feminists and campaigners tried to gather at the statue of Emmeline Pankhurst in order to talk about women's rights, to talk about the threat to women's rights, and they were prevented from doing so by a bunch of mostly men in black balaclavas who were calling the women bigots and other words we probably shouldn't repeat on a live podcast. And it got me thinking about lots of the points you make in your book, Joe, about how whatever wokeness is, it is not progressive politics as we would traditionally have understood it. And it made me think, how did we get to a situation where a bunch of menacing blokes in black masks and hoods, standing up to women and, and threatening women, and in one case, manhandling a woman who was waving a suffragette flag? How did we get to a situation where something like that is considered to be progressive politics? So just to get into this issue. What did you think of what happened in Manchester? And did you think it was indicative of some of the stuff that you've written about in this book? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, these people are thugs. And if if you haven't seen the footage of what went on in Manchester, it's well worth looking it up. I mean, at any other time, if people had seen these images or, or around any other issue of, of like you said, balaclavered 
uh, masked all in black, you know, they'd have been described as terrorists, as, as thugs, you know, this would be the front page of every newspaper. Uh, you know, imagine if this was Brexit supporters, for example, mm. you know, that this people would be really going to town on this, saying how outrageous that these thugs are there kind of protesting against women, just trying to get the voices heard. But because it's this issue, it's like nobody really knows how to handle it, what to say about it. But, but these people really, we should be in no doubt. I mean, it seems to me they're like the militant wing of the academics, of health professionals, of all those people who sit there in schools, in hospitals, in the civil service, kind of preaching this idea that to be a woman is nothing more than an identity. It's nothing more than just a feeling. It's like they've legitimized these people to go out there and behave in this thuggish, violent mm. way. And it's absolutely shocking. And it, and kind of the imagery of it, of them standing around protecting a, a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst, just adds to how shocking and appalling this is, how it's a real attack on women, on women's rights, on feminism, on everything that's progressive that's happened in relation to women's sex-based rights over the past century, how intent these people are uh, on turning back the clock on those hard-won rights, uh, even to the point of, of behaving violently. As to how we've got here, you know, that that's a very, very big question. And I think you'd want to look at uh, so many different things. You'd want to look at what's going on in academia. But I think more to the point, you also want to look at what's going on in left-wing politics more broadly. And that shift away from uh, kind of a politics that was about arguing for essentially the rights of working class people, um, the rights of more people to have more say, more control over their lives. And the kind of contempt that the left has developed over the past couple of decades for kind of ordinary working class people and the kind of real fear that's emerged around um, from the left about ordinary people having their voices heard and how that's then shifted into this focus on identity groups and, and trans being just one of the identity based issues that really comes to the fore. Yeah, one person made a very good point about the gathering in Manchester, which is that the the protesters, the counter-protesters hung the trans flag on the statue of, of Pankhurst. And they said it was a bit like someone putting the white power flag on a statue of Martin Luther King, which I thought was a very apt comparison, given that trans activism and therefore the trans flag is so innately hostile to the idea of womanhood and women's rights and so on. Um, I want to come back to the issue of trans a little bit later, because I've got a couple of specific questions on that that I want to ask you. And of course, you cover it very well in the book. But just to go back to the beginning, uh, I want to ask you, how do you define wokeness? Because one thing I'm very conscious of when I talk about woke politics, and I would refer to the thing in Manchester as an example of woke politics, um, but I'm, I'm always quite conscious that wokeness is a quite amorphous term. It means different things to different people. And even when I use it, I know that it's not quite the right word for the kind of cultural movement that I'm trying to talk about. But we are lacking in the language, I think, to describe the regressive new politics, which you describe in this book. So just to kick off the, 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 the digging down into wokeness and why it's a problem, how do you define 
uh, what it means to be woke? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a kind of key question. And in a way, it takes me <laughs> all 250 pages of the book <laughs> in some ways to answer that question. Because I think it, it's kind of deliberately vague. You know, there's no kind of woke club or woke society that you can join. There's no woke badge. And I think, you know, I almost have to be a bit careful not to um, present woke as a conspiracy. There's no committee that gets together to decide, you know, what's going to be the next woke policy that we push for. There just seems to be a group of quite key, uh, but but a fairly substantial group of, of kind of key influencers, if you like, who seem to pick up on a fairly kind of random basis, it can seem sometimes different policies, different values that they're adopting, very fluid, very fast changing. But, and I, I did, I've got to be honest, I did think long and hard about whether to have a book with woke in the title, but I did because it seemed that there was a number of different ideas, particularly around race, around gender, uh, kind of things we've already touched upon that were coming together and had been coming together over a number of years. And, and you can kind of predict if you know what somebody thinks about gender, for example, you can kind of predict where they're going to fall on a number of other issues. So clearly there is some coalescing here. And I think exactly as you say, Brendan, you know, there isn't an identifiable label. And I think, I do think that is deliberate. You know, these, these people kind of do deliberately avoid, um, having this label for themselves. Because ultimately, if you don't identify yourself as a particular group, if you don't put a name to it, it does make it far harder for people to push back and challenge it. And, you know, whether woke is the best word or not is debatable, but it annoys them. So I think that's always (laughs) a good thing to do. Um, And I think it it is useful in kind of providing us with a name, uh, however contested, for this kind of amorphous group of ideas um, that does encompass thinking on race, on in gender, that that we can see really turns back the key gains of the civil rights era, turns back the key gains of feminism. You know, it's it's a very regressive movement that you know does extend across a, a number of different issues, but but has a few key features in common as well, and has a few key people in common. And like I said, I don't think it's a perfect term, but I think. It, it can be very useful for us in actually being able to name an ideology that we want to challenge and oppose. Yeah, and I think actually Tony Blair, surprisingly, uh, who who has weirdly become a kind of warrior against wokeness, he put it quite well when he said, um, you know, lots of people would struggle to define what wokeness means, but they have an instinctual feel for what it means. So they know that it means you know, people up there looking down on us and imposing certain eccentric ideologies and saying ridiculous things about gender that make no sense and using schools to try to inculcate children into a certain way of thinking. I think lots of people have a very instinctual feel for the kind of people it refers to and the kind of thing it refers to. So it, it, it's a useful term in that sense. So It is, Brendan, but sorry, just to interrupt a second. I mean, I personally would be a bit suspicious about people like Tony Blair when they criticise work because, 
you know, I, I think what they are sometimes critical of is kind of the worst excesses, you know, a bit like how when people used to criticize political correctness kind of 25, 30 years ago, and they'd highlight examples of like children being told not to sing Baba Black Sheep in nurseries and look how, how ridiculous this is, you know, political correctness gone mad. But what they actually meant by that was they just want their form of political correctness. They want something a bit more subtle, a bit more nuanced, perhaps. And, and I do worry that when not it's not just Tony Blair, but a few others in the Labour Party and a few people high up in the Democratic uh, Democrats in the US as well, when they come out with these criticisms of work, sometimes I think what they're doing is they're just shying away from some of the excesses, perhaps some of the rhetorical flourishes. And what they really mean is, you know, let, let's just be a bit more subtle and a bit cleverer about this and let's just push through you know, what, what I <laughs> like to think of as woke rather than what some of these more wacky people like to think of as woke. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the great story or the terrible story of political correctness, of course, is that in the 80s and the 90s, there was a huge amount of fury about political correctness gone mad, as you say, uh, while at the same time, politically correct ideas were just infusing themselves into education, into universities, into workplaces. So the focus on the excesses of PC uh, was quite helpful in a way in allowing PC more broadly to, to take hold in society. And I think a similar thing, as you say, is probably happening with wokeness too. Um, so another term or another idea that I want you to define for us and to explain why it's important is the culture wars, because one of the early chapters in your book is on the culture wars. Um, this is another phrase we hear a lot these days. And it's one of those phrases that also can be quite confusing because the only people who are ever accused of launching a culture war in the liberal media are, are the right. You know, the right is always said to be launching culture wars if they stand up for statues or if they say, uh, so-called liberal education has gone too far, then they are accused of launching a culture war. Whereas the people who started these battles in the first place, which is the people who tell us there are 72 genders and Winston Churchill must come down and uh, and most Brits are racist. I mean, that's never a culture war. That's always normal politics. And any resistance to it is instantly branded a culture war. So that can be a, a bit of a perplexing idea, I think, for lots of people. So how do you define the culture wars? And, and why do you think the culture wars in many ways have replaced class war, which was how we understood politics for such a long time uh, over the past few years? Yeah, great questions. I mean, uh, certainly on on what you're saying about uh, don't start a culture war, you know, um, don't inflame culture wars. I've had both of those comments made in relation to the title of my book, where people have said, well, even just by using this word woke in a book title, isn't that a bit culture war-y? Aren't I kind of pouring um, fuel on a culture war fire? And shouldn't I take a step back and not do that? But it's very interesting how that argument is always leveled at the people who are criticising um, moves that have already been made by activists in another area. You know, it's not the people who want to knock a statue down who are ever accused of starting a culture war. It's always the people who actually say, well, hang on a minute, could we not possibly keep this statue here, please, if it's not too much trouble, who are the ones who are accused of, of being kind of part of the culture wars. It's never the people who are thinking of taking what is it, the national anthem? 
them or Royal Britannia out of last night of the proms who were accused of starting a culture war. It's always the people who say, actually, could we not just keep it? Thank mm. you. Uh, you know, so it's a real uh, double-edged thing. And, and the other thing that, again, as you allude to, is, uh, you know, how culture war is always pitched against kind of real politics as if there's two different kinds of things going on. You've got this kind of pretend or, or student-y type of not real politics going on in one sphere. And then you've got kind of real hard issues going on in another area. And, and you know, are we not just being a bit trivial, a bit silly, you know, just, just kind of starting fights for no reason by engaging in culture war issues when really we should be kind of focusing on the um, real economic problems. But I think that's a really false divide because it completely blurs over where these two areas very, very much um, merge into one another. I don't think you can make that very clear distinction between saying, you know, this is a culture war issue and this is a political issue. I think the whole things have become very, very blurred. So if you have a look, for example, at the um, Roe v. Wade um, potential overturning in the US, I mean, to me, that's as real politics as you get. You know, this is very much an infringement upon women's rights. It's very much about overturning some legislation that was designed to protect and defend women's rights. Um, and yet, you know, I don't think this would be happening if it hadn't been for woke activists completely robbing the word woman of all content, of all meaning, of making it impossible even for many abortion um, providers to actually use the term woman in relation to pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy. So I think, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a, a complete cutoff between the two. But I think the other uh, question that you're asking there about, you know, what, where these two kind of blend in and how we've gone from um, class politics to identity politics. Again, to me, it has to come back to changes on the left and has to come back to how um, left-wing political movements have changed beyond all recognition, even during the space of my lifetime. You know, if you look at how trade unions carry on nowadays, you know, you, I'm at risk of sounding like I'm romanticizing the past, but there was always been a lot wrong with trade unions mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. But the, the good thing, like the, the best thing about trade unions was that they had one purpose, which was to defend workers. You know, they were to um, defend against job losses and to argue for higher wages for their um, members. You look at how many trade unions carry on nowadays, and they're actually at the forefront of pushing through many of these um, woke ideas. So you look at the lecturers union, for example, um, it's supposed to be representing academics. I know probably not the best example of, of the working class, uh, but they have gone from organizing strikes to protect people's pensions, organizing strikes to protect against redundancies and job losses, to being at the absolute forefront of pushing through transgender policies in universities. They now campaign around where can, um, like who can use which toilets, campaigning to make sure that, that everybody of every gender has access to every toilet on campus. It's like, seriously, that's what you think is the most important issue. Let's forget about the biggest cost of uh, living crisis in a generation. You want to make sure, not that you're defending your members' jobs, but that men can use the women's toilets. I mean, seriously. 
But but this is where the unions are at. And I think it's because the left has changed and, and the left has gone down this line of not defending workers' rights, but but pushing identity politics, that, that the culture wars becomes kind of real politics. It, it becomes where politics is at. They, they've pushed to focus on these kind of cultural issues because they're absolutely incapable of doing anything else other than that. Uh, one of the things I that got me thinking in your book, well, lots of your book got me thinking, but one in relation to the culture war chapter and also the much later chapter from class to identity, I was thinking about how you understand class now, because one thing that I've always thought, which is not really the whole story, but I find it a useful way of understanding some of these things, is that the culture war often looks like a class war in disguise. So it's very often targeted at certain sections of society who are seen as stupid, racist, unhealthy, you know, too beholden to Brexit. They need to be corrected. They need to be improved. So there's a, there is a class-hating element to some of the kind of woke culture war that we're seeing. But also there is, I think there's a broader question, which is that doesn't fighting the culture war necessarily precede any politics that's about class or economics because the culture war issue touches so much upon what it means to be a member of society. So I think people experience some of the culture war almost as an existential threat because it's calling into question your sense of belonging, the history of the society that you live in, um, the notion that there's you can control your borders or have a, 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 a nation, democracy. All those fundamental principles are often being turned on their heads by the woke culture war, which I think can make people feel uh, at a loss and not really belonging to their communities or their societies. And they feel very strongly that this new form of politics is trying to rip them from those old forms of solidarity. So isn't it the case that the culture wars have to be fought and won in order that politics as we traditionally understood it, or politics in terms of improving people's living standards and their futures can can start to take place? Yeah, I really agree with all of that. Um, I mean, I think to me, woke thinking nowadays is the biggest and and kind of most legitimate form of attack on working class people, not just on their living standards, but but it kind of legitimizes snobbery, essentially. Mm. It, it it legitimizes blatant expressions of, of class prejudice. But I think the issue of, of how do we define class is a really important one. And, you know, one of the things, one of the many things that really enjoy, uh, really annoys me about people who are most woke is they bang on an awful lot about cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation is one of the biggest crimes that you can commit in their eyes. So if I was to kind of get myself a new haircut with dreadlocks, for example, or start wearing big gold hoopy earrings, I would no doubt or start wearing a kimono style dress or even worse do all three of them at the same time. Um, I would be called out immediately for cultural appropriation. You know, I'd be appropriating African culture, black American culture, Japanese culture. And yet I think they engage in cultural appropriation all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that they do is they culturally appropriate working class issues and working class identity. And they take on that kind of identity as if it belongs to them. 
And, um, you know, you can see this in all kinds of, of areas, um, particularly anything where people are set to be at a disadvantage. And this is where, you know, it's actually not true. They think they're appropriating working class culture, but they're not because no working class person I know identifies with being a victim. You know, I, to me, like the working class people I know are incredibly proud of everything that they've achieved. They're proud to have worked hard. They're, they're very proud to um, kind of, they don't want charity, let's say, you know, they're very proud of everything that they've achieved and accomplished and they want to work hard and they want to make a good living for themselves and a good life for them and their families. What the woke culture warriors do is appropriate the victimhood they appropriate all the kind of disadvantages that can come with being economically um, impoverished, you know, or being disadvantaged or discriminated against for, for any particular reason. And they kind of take these disadvantages on board as if they are their disadvantages. It's actually really sickening because you see some incredibly middle class, incredibly privileged people who kind of then go around talking as if they are the, the new disadvantaged working class and as if they're actually more working class because they're happy to berate their victimhood and their disadvantages on every public platform that will allow them to be able to do that. Which, like I said, the irony is no working, genuine working class person would ever dream of doing that. But they feel happy to do that. They appropriate this kind of working class identity and rob it of all its exciting political potential to actually be a force for progressive change in society, for, for a force for kind of democratic, um, revolutionary even change. So, I mean, I guess the real classic example of this would be, again, Brexit. When you look at the number of working class areas that returned a kind of majority vote for Brexit, and yet the reaction from the woke elite to this was to completely uh, throw their hands up in horror. You know, there were no insults too horrible that they couldn't be thrown against the kind of the gammon, the racist, the xenophobes, the ignorant, the lizard brains, etc., etc. So they kind of can legitimately express their absolute loathing of the working class, you know, all um, gloves are off. They can absolutely do that whilst at the same time kind of pretending that they have all these disadvantages and they are the genuine voice of the working class. And I, I think anybody who's interested in real social change needs to call this out for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. That's very well put. And if I hear one more overeducated, plummy young person who's got a nice job in graphic design in London describe themselves as the real working class and 60-year-olds who happen to own their homes in the north of England as the oppressor class, I would just go completely insane. But I think that um, that rewriting of what it means to be working class is actually quite important because I think it does signal that there is an element among some of the woke elite, especially the younger uh, parts of it, where they are looking for a sense of authenticity. I think sometimes they have a tiny bit of awareness that they are a, a, in a privileged layer of society and they're looking for something that will demonstrate, as you say, an aspect of victimhood or a, a culture of suffering, which will then give them a bit more cachet when it comes to making certain statements or, or taking certain positions. Um, 
So on just on the question then off the left, because you've mentioned a few times how a lot of this speaks to the left, the changes in the left and the way in which the left has fundamentally lost the plot on lots of issues. And I think that's a key part of this. And I wanted to dig down into a few issues with you in which through wokeness, the progressive position has been completely turned on its head. So uh, the first one I want to ask you about is racism. You have a chapter in your book on the new racism, which looks at how anti-racist politics has somehow morphed into a woke politics of uh, uh, racial myopia, where we are constantly encouraged to think about race and to understand society in racial terms. So just explain a little bit about how the left or, or or the progressive elite's understanding of race and racism has changed over the past few years? Yeah, so I think oh, certainly when I was uh, younger than I am now, um, a progressive view on race was to say and genuinely be colorblind, you know, to uh, it's it's kind of a, become a bit of a cheesy cliche, but that's unfortunate, and it shouldn't be to to quote Martin Luther King, you know, and to judge people um, by the content of their character rather than the colour of their skin. And anti-racism was about moving beyond race, so that the the colour of someone's skin would become the least important thing about them. And and you know, people, you'd live in a world where um, people were judged by what they could do, you know, or, or their personality, their character, um, rather than first and foremost by the colour of their skin. And it would be considered incredibly um, prejudiced and discriminatory to see people first and foremost as representatives of their skin colour. And I think really it's not just a recent thing, but the, the seeds of this change were there even towards the end of the 1970s, but it's been building since that time from within anti-racist politics where there's this sense that actually that that's wrong, that old-fashioned anti-racism is wrong. And actually really what you should do is you should see skin colour. And, and if you say you don't see skin colour, then you're a liar. And uh, you're also actually now being racist because you're lying and because actually in order to be anti-racist, you do need to judge people by the colour of their skin so that we can discriminate positively and make concessions and kind of level up the playing field. And, um, you know, one thing that strikes me is that uh, the world is is incredibly different place, even to when I was a child. And the world is by every single statistical measure out there a lot less racist than it ever ever was but i think you see the same thing sometimes in relation to women's rights and feminism as well but you've got this this kind of thing where you we create almost this activist class these kind of professional activists the entrepreneurs if you like who have identified a role for themselves a purpose for themselves also let's be very very honest a source of revenue from the existence of racism from the existence of inequality whether that's sexual inequality um, particularly around gay rights lesbian rights um, and racial inequality and as society has changed and progressed and genuine, um, genuinely become more equal, it's almost as if you've got this professional activist class who can't quite give up mm. on 
um, the position and the authority and the moral superiority that they had from fighting these battles. So it's almost as if they have to reinvent um, racism and you reinvent um, kind of discrimination on the basis of sexuality and you for a new generation um, in order to put it bluntly to kind of justify their own position to justify why they are needed to tell everybody else how to live their lives and conduct their relationships between people. I think that should worry us all, you know, that you've got people in that position because it takes challenging racism out of the hands of, of ordinary people. You know, again, it used to be down to, to regular people. If you saw an incident, a, a racist incident, incident, you know, you, you'd start, step up to the plate, you know, you'd go and you'd say, oh, you know, don't do that. Don't say that. I think you would intervene. You would actually stop and, and, get people to, to stop it as far as you could. Um, but now this idea that to be anti-racist, you have to have this specific type of vocabulary. You have to have read certain books. You know, you're probably supposed to have taken particular modules at university. And unless you've got this kind of particular vocabulary um, that comes from these woke activists, unless you are prepared to divide everybody up by the minutiae of their skin color and, and look at everybody as being um, a member of a different racial group, then somehow there's something wrong with you. You know, it's not enough, they say, to be against racism. You have to be an anti-racist. Well, to my mind, being an anti-racist is actually means being racist nowadays. It means seeing people as representatives of a skin colour, dividing people up against racial, interracial groups, rather than simply saying there's one race, the human race. Yeah, that last comment you made there, there's one race, the human race. There are some campuses in the US now where saying things like that is considered a microaggression. So at UCLA, for example, it is a microaggression to say there's only one race. It's also has been considered a microaggression to say, um, I don't see race. I want a colorblind society, which makes you think that if Martin Luther King were to come back, he would be no platformed from a significant number of universities for having the wrong views on, on the racial way of thinking. Sorry, Brendan, just to jump in there a second bit. You know, that completely kind of proves the point I'm making as well about how these people can't give up on the yeah. cause that they've aligned themselves with, because the very fact that you're talking about microaggressions kind of suggests in a way that all the macro aggressions have been solved. You know, there's no <laughs> macro aggressions to have to deal with anymore. We've got to work harder and harder to dig out these microaggressions. You know, and you've listed two examples there, but some of them get so bizarre, like, you know, somebody didn't make eye contact with you yeah. in a meeting, or, you know, somebody did make too much eye contact with you in a meeting. Well, when you start getting down to that level, when, when that's the micro, micro level of aggression you're dealing with, clearly there's not that many real problems that you're having to deal with. Or the environmental microaggression of having to walk past the Statue of Rhodes <laughs> in Oxford. That was one of my favourite forms of violence that the poor little students have to uh, witness every day. Um, one of the most, just following on from the race issue, which you've described very well there in terms of the problematic way in which it's uh, understood now by the woke elites. One of the, I think one of the most perverse things about wokeness for me is that on the one hand, you have the ossification of race. So race is becoming increasingly fixed as a way of understanding people, as a way of understanding society. But alongside the ossification of race, you have the fluidity of sex. 
So sex is seen as something you can choose, you can play around with, you can change. And that strikes me as completely and utterly bizarre because I've always understood race as a fiction. There is no physiological difference between me and a black man, whereas sex is real. There is a huge amount of physiological difference between me and a woman. So uh, isn't that one of the most perverse things here? And, and not just perverse, but actually quite dangerous in terms of progressive politics. Whereas on the one hand, we have this... Um, rigid understanding of race as the informer of every form of behavior almost, whereas sex, the truth of sex, the truth of biology has become this flexible thing that you can play around with. And if anyone disagrees with you, they're a bigot and a transphobe. That's really bizarre, right? It, it absolutely is. And as you point out, you know, it completely turns an older era of, of kind of more progressive, genuinely more progressive thinking on its head. You know, the idea that, that there was no such thing as race, when you look at the, the differences between people, um, to put it crudely, you see just as many differences um, between the kind of category of, of white people, as you see between black people and white people, you know, however you want to measure, get out your, I, wouldn't, I was going to say your Dulux colour chart, but I suspect for most woke activists, it would be the Pharaoh and Ball colour chart <laughs> that they would be getting out to kind of look at the differences in skin colour. You know, there's just as many variations in the white category as there is between the black and the white category. Whereas you're absolutely right, you know, sex is immutable, it's binary, you're male or female. Um, I can't remember where I read this, but but I came across this somewhere just the other day, you know, somebody saying if, if, if somebody had their leg cut off, I think it was maybe on your last um, Brendan O'Neill show, Brendan, uh, Simon Fanshaw, I think saying, you know, just because somebody is born with only one leg, it doesn't mean to say that the human race doesn't have two legs, yeah. you know, it doesn't change the overall category group. But a word of, of caution that I would throw into your question, uh, you know, I think for all gender has been presented as this kind of fluid category. I think woke activists at heart do actually struggle with that concept. They struggle with the notion of fluidity, which, you know, in some ways, dare I say, could actually be quite exciting, you know, could have some potential to, to throw up in terms of our identity and how we understand ourselves. Obviously, you know, I'm not denying the reality of, of binary sex differences between men and women here, but but the idea of, of identity being considered a bit more fluid could be on some levels a bit more exciting, have a bit more creative potential. But I think for that very reason, that kind of a tiny slither of potential and excitement here is being very rapidly shut down. Um, so just to kind of give a bit of an anecdote on this, I've taught a course on um, feminist political thought for about three years now. And when I first taught this module, um, you know, I'd go in and, and obviously one of the classes we would do would be on gender identity. And three years ago, my students were completely convinced that to be transgender was a kind of curious form of intersex where you, in the womb, a baby would develop with kind of a pink brain inside a blue body, that you'd have a male brain inside a female body. And so obviously the kind of kind and nice thing to do was to let that child 
undergo all kinds of hormone therapies and surgery to bring their physical body in line with the kind of true reality of their brain. So I kind of three years on went into the neck into the class when I was teaching this same session, kind of fully prepared to have this argument out and to say, you know, there's no such thing as a pink brain inside a blue body and, you know, really um, challenge them on that. But I was surprised to see that not one of the students thought that anymore. You know, they all said, you know, that there's, there is no such thing. You don't have this pink brain in the blue body. Um, what you have is, is this sense that people um, have this kind of innate sense of gender identity. They don't need to change their bodies to bring it in line. The rest of society needs to change to accommodate this sense of, of innate identity that someone has. So we all need to change our views towards toilets and changing rooms, etc., rather than actually changing people's bodies. So in some ways, it just seems that the, the kind of the fluidity um, has gone a little bit. So I've just realized the example is a very, very bad example for proving the point I wanted to make. <laughs> But I still think, you know, they, they're becoming a lot more rigid and fixed in these ideas about gender, you know, and, and this idea that you are, there is an innate sense, an, an innate yeah. essence of who you are that, that has to be revealed to an accepting world, um, but, but doesn't actually change, isn't actually fluid, is, is just kind of there inside you waiting to be uncovered and needs to be accepted. I think it's becoming it's becoming a lot more entrenched, a lot more fixed in a way that's that's not, you know, is is just as horrible as all the discussions around race, really. Yeah, and I think that that that's a very good point. And there's an element of sexism too in some of this transgender ideology or gender fluidity as it was as it's sometimes known. You know, the notion that if a boy prefers certain colors or toys, then he must be a girl because that's what girls do. Or if you're an effeminate male, maybe you're a woman. If you're a butch lesbian, maybe you're a man. So there is this kind of rehabilitation of slightly old-fashioned pre-1960s views of how the sexes behave and how the sexes think. Um, yeah, definitely. Again, sorry to jump in, but you hmm. see that in the discussion around drag queens as well, for yeah. example. Um, so drag, as I understood it, you know, could be quite an exciting, um, creative form of expression. You know, it could be something, you know, you got, but you would never refer to a drag queen as, as she, you know, because if you did, then it actually pulled the rug on the whole point of drag, which was to see um, a man dressed up as a woman, you know, that was the form of entertainment. It, it was, it was that, that was the kind of presentation that you were going along with. That was the act of the drag act. But as soon as you start saying that the drag queen is a she, is a woman, it stops being this kind of fluid, creative, um, kind of dramatic act and what you're really saying is that this is a fixed part of a person's identity and it completely changes the whole discussion around that you have a chapter on thought crimes and um it's one of my favorite chapters and of course this is about the fact that one of the key elements of wokeness is that there are certain things you're not allowed to say and certain things you're not allowed to think and if you do you face cancellation, no platforming, expulsion from polite society, and sometimes even physical violence. So um, I want to ask you about that. And just following on from what we've been talking about, um, 
the trans issue, which I think is is central to a lot of this new way of thinking. Of course, on that issue, the thought crimes thing is very uh, clear because if you use the wrong pronouns or what I would describe as the correct pronouns, you will be punished and demonized. If you don't go along with the religious mantra that trans women are women, you will be seen as a bad person. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you just as a way into this discussion of the control of thought and the control of speech. I think one of the most admirable stances you've taken recently is in relation to pronouns and your refusal to use the pronouns she and her for someone who has a penis and a five o'clock shadow and is obviously a male or even people who don't have those things but are still obviously male and were born male. Um, So could you explain why you have decided to take that position and why you think it's a problem that people are so thoroughly demonized or excommunicated for holding certain views and saying certain things? I mean, I think the reason why I took that stance is just because I think language is so important. Uh, If you think language is the only means we really have to communicate with each other, uh, you know, if it wasn't for language, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. And we've got to assume um, not just that there is some relationship and without getting into all the kind of arguments of structuralism and, and, you know, Ferdinand Saussure and all of the rest of it, you know, we've got to assume that there's some relationship between the words that we use and reality. And we've also got to assume a common frame of reference that the words I'm using now are to some extent being interpreted as I mean them to be understood um, by the people who are listening. And the danger is that if we just completely play around with language, if we just start imposing our own individual definitions on words, then we lose that connection between language and reality. And we also lose the ability for us all to have a a common dialogue with each other. And I think, you know, this is an area that woke activists are very, very uh, hot on themselves and they do it very deliberately. You know, and this is why language is an absolute key um, feature of their attempts to change their world, the world, if you like, as they would like it to be. Um, you know, this this kind of starts right at the nursery with lessons for three and four year olds in the correct language to use to describe um, gender, race, you know, it actually shapes, it ultimately language shapes not just what you say, but it shapes the way we think, it shapes our capacity to think about certain issues. So I think if you if you use um, pronouns she, her to describe somebody who's male um, or a, a trans woman, out of politeness, you know, you might say, well, this is just a question of being nice. It's just a question of being tolerant. It's just a question of being respectful of using the pronouns that they want to be referred to as. But what you're doing is you're actually saying a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, you're actually saying um, that you, you're handing the power to them for for one thing, you're allowing them to dictate how we should speak, how we should define reality. Um, and you're, you're saying, I will collude with you in this lie. I will collude with you in your belief, your false belief that you are literally a woman. 
Um, and, and I will use language to go along with that. And the problem is then, you know, it becomes very, very dangerous very quickly because as soon as you say, you know, yes, I will use she and her, you get into all these kinds of ridiculous situations where, you know, you've got women standing up in court, women who've been very seriously sexually assaulted or even been raped and having to stand there before a judge and say, that woman, she raped me, she got her penis out and, and she inserted her penis into me and you know that's cruel mm. that there's no other word for it i mean that is incredibly cruel to make women who've been victims of rape go through that and to be punished if they don't go along with that but but like i said it also makes a nonsense of how we understand reality so you we frequently now have crime reports written up in newspapers where you're left, frankly, baffled about what the point of the story is. You know there's been some sexual assault, perhaps. You know there's been an attack on a girl or on a woman. And you're reading this thinking, you know, this doesn't quite make sense. And then it's not until perhaps the very end of the article where the penny drops and you realize all the she's and hers and woman have been referring actually to a male. So for those reasons, I think it's incredibly important that we don't allow woke activists to define the terms of our debate, of, of the way that we use language to communicate a sense of reality to each other. Yeah. And one of those stories that really struck me recently was a New York Times and a BBC report about an 82-year-old woman, I think, who had murdered and dismembered someone. And I was reading it thinking, 82-year-old women don't do that. I'm sure that's never happened in history that an 82-year-old woman does this. And it obviously, it turned out to be a man who had murdered women before. So there is this kind of sanctioned lying, this sanctioned myth-making. And as you say, people who fail to go along with it will be punished in some fashion. So that compulsion to lie, that compulsion to say things that deep down we know not to be true, I think really speaks to the Orwellian nature of some of this uh, woke politics. Um, so my final question on that, before I bring in a few quick fire questions from the audience, um, is, is basically in relation to freedom of speech. So to what extent is freedom of speech the solution to all of this, not only because it would allow us to push forward a critique like your critique in, in How Woke One, uh, the freedom to do that, but also just because in exercising freedom every day, surely bit by bit you puncture these myths. I was thinking about this. I've, I've just done a piece about an Australian politician who is in hot water because she referred to trans surgery as mutilation. Um, and what you should say about trans surgery, what you're supposed to say is that it's gender affirming surgery. So I was thinking about the term gender affirming surgery, which is actually about forcing you to think in a particular way. It's not just a polite phrase that makes people feel happy. It actually changes how one thinks about that kind of operation and that kind of procedure. So there are lots of examples where words and language are used not just to force us to speak in a particular way, but also to think in a particular way. So to what extent do you think freedom of speech is the key that can unlock a lot of the more positive and progressive pushback one might make against this regressive new movement? 
Yeah, I think 100%. It, it absolutely is. And that's why it's so, so vital that we do keep fighting for freedom of speech. And you can tell that if you didn't know already, you could tell that freedom of speech is key to unlocking all of this just by how incredibly hostile um, these kind of woke cultural elites are to um, freedom of speech, how terrified actually they are of the prospect of freedom of speech. I mean, you need to look no further than the uh, totally unhinged response to um, Elon Musk's proposed takeover of Twitter and how alarmed people are, you know, sections of of our cultural elite are uh, alarmed that this might actually happen and that there might be a kind of slight sliver more freedom of speech available to people. For me, you know, what's good about this Elon Musk's proposed takeover of Twitter is not, you know, the swapping of one billionaire for another billionaire, but that it could potentially really clarify for us um, where the attacks on free speech are coming from. Because you see, you know, even at the very point at which Elon Musk's takeover was raised, how our government, the EU, the US government, you know, you've got all of these um kind of national uh, governments, supranational institutions, suddenly devising their own rules mm. and, and insisting upon more and more of their own rules being followed in the name of safety, of course, to control and clamp down and rule out any um, speech that they don't like actually taking place. I think that's one thing. I mean, the other thing as well, you know, maybe a bit of an obvious point, but, but just how... The people who hold these woke views, you see how to such a large extent, it just becomes a complete article of faith. You know, there's so little substance behind it. As soon as they're put on the spot and really asked to defend their beliefs, you know, you really push someone who's a trans activist on the arguments around the existence of of sex, uh, of sex being a binary. You really push some of these critical race theorists on, on what are you doing? You know, are you rehabilitating the whole notion of race? And, you know, they they so often just refuse to participate in the debate, which is incredibly frustrating. Mm -hmm. But it's also because they've just not got the arguments. You know, they've not got any substance that it's it's ultimately hollow, which is actually a really, really good thing for anybody who is wanting to oppose this. Because, you know, if they were coming out saying, yeah, free speech, bring it on. I'm up for this. I really want to have these arguments. Any platform you can provide, I'll be there. I'll be ready to engage in these debates. Perhaps we would have something to be a bit more worried about, you know, but the fact that they shy away from debate every step of the way, the fact that clamping down on free speech is their final retort always um, just shows that there's no there's no substance behind what they're, what they're saying. So I'm going to do a quick fire round now to to close, which is um, some questions from the audience. And um, this is actually something I wanted to ask you myself, but I've left it now because we've had this question from quite a few people watching the discussion. Um, Alan, Alan asks, is critical race theory Marxist? And then a kind of complementary question to that comes from Leah, who says, should we be challenging the idea that woke is left wing. And I know that in the book, of course, you touch on these issues, including the idea that these ideas are Marxist. So uh, how do you respond to those questions? No, (laughs) I would say, no, it's definitely, definitely not Marxist, you know, and I think that's, 
I can understand in some ways the attraction. It, it's a very cheap shot and it's a very easy thing just to be able to say, oh, you know, this is Marxist. And I guess if you want to go back into the academics of all this, you could draw some very, very tenuous links between the kind of Frankfurt School and where they got their academic origins from in terms of critical theory uh, and their kind of tenuous links to Marxism. But I think much of that, um, what happened in academia, even going back to the 1950s, 1960s, was actually a response against Marxism, even at that point, rather than a development within Marxism. But to me, Marxism ultimately is a progressive, genuinely progressive um, view that is actually centered on ideas of class, social class inequality. And as we've kind of said throughout, really, um, the woke worldview is completely the opposite to that. It, it is not about foregrounding working class people as agents of change. It's about knocking back working class people, um, not only keeping them in the place, but doing them down and, and certainly preventing ordinary people from having any capacity to change the world whatsoever. This is another question that I know you touch on in the book too, which comes from Kerry. Why is the establishment so keen to collude with such minority concerns like the ideology of gender fluidity? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I think there are a number of different things going on here, and, and it depends which section of the establishment we're referring to. I mean, one thing I would say straight off the bat is, is just cowardice, moral cowardice. Um, you know, when you've got the, these activists are often bullies, you know, and it's a word I'm, I use very, very reluctantly, but the idea of, of standing up to these people is terrifies lots of people, even people in influential positions in the Conservative Party, in the media, you know, still feel the need to kowtow and uh, are too cowardly to actually stand up for it. Um, you know, I think, I think some sections of the establishment either do genuinely believe in this or more to the point, think other people, the people mm. who they want to win over genuinely believe in it. So if you look at sections within the Conservative Party, I think they do, some sections in the Conservative Party do have a sense that, or, or think, I think they're wrong, but they do think that if we want to win over young people, if we want the youth vote, the only way we can do that is to kind of be woke and um, kind of try and play that game. So we better come out with a few woke, you know, invite Stonewall along to the Conservative Party conference, for example, because that will make us trendy and relevant to young people. I think they're wrong in that, but I, I do think they, they genuinely believe that that's one way to win over young people. But I think, I think the biggest thing that strikes me in um, education, in the civil service, in policing, is what you've got before any woke thinking comes in is a complete hollowing out of any intrinsic sense of purpose. So very few teachers nowadays think that um, transmitting knowledge or the pursuit of knowledge or uh, inculcating children into a kind of cultural legacy is worthwhile, a worthwhile endeavor in its own terms. You know, very few civil servants, it seems to me, have a sense of public duty, of a, a kind of passion to actually serve the public, to, to enact a role in civil society. Uh, you know, very few academics believe in the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of knowledge in that, that way. So when you create these kind of hollowed out institutions, 
lacking any moral sense of purpose, you create this vacuum and suddenly then along comes this kind of woke thinking and it's latched upon as like, oh, suddenly we've got this kind of off the peg sense of moral purpose. Um, we've got something which we can um, uh, latch upon, which could be useful, could give us some sense of, of what we can do. And uh, the final thing I would add on to that is it is can be genuinely useful for them. You know, we should be under no illusion about that. If you can divide and rule, if you can divide your workforce up, if you can have people being too worried about saying the wrong thing that they're ever going to speak out, if you have people looking at the differences they've got between each other, competing as different identity groups, then they're not uniting, as we were saying, in relation to trade unions to argue for better pay, better conditions. Uh, instead, they're coming to you as their boss to, to sort out the kind of petty grievances that they might have with each other. And you can load it up. You can enjoy playing that role with all the power and authority that then endows upon you. Absolutely. And there's a brilliant chapter in the book about woke capitalism and how the boss class, as we might refer to them, exploits this politics to to dominate the workforce. So people should read that chapter too. Um, okay, this is the final question I'm going to ask you. This comes from James. It's a good question to end on, I think, which is, does your book suggest what we can do? And I, 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 it's actually a good question because um, How Woke One, I think, is a fantastic title. The cover of the book is absolutely beautiful, I think. Um but it could be seen as a little bit of a depressing title, the <laughs> idea that wokeness has won, which I think some people would push back against. Um, but we've already touched upon the incredibly important role of freedom of speech in tackling wokeness. But in the book, you also touch upon the role of democracy and the democratic scepticism that lots of ordinary people have towards this new elite form of politics. So just uh, spell out a little bit uh, how your book describes what we can do about this regressive new politics. So I've got to be completely honest, and there was a part of me with the title, um, just like the fact that it will wind a lot of people up. <laughs> it's a bit provocative. As we were saying earlier, I think one of the things about this new cultural elite, our professional managerial class, however you want to call them, is they appropriate disadvantage, they appropriate victimhood. And as part of that, they really deny the power that they possess. So at the very same time as they are now heading up these public institutions, running the media, you know, they play the victim card and deny that they have any power or any authority. So actually saying, you know, woke one <laughs> um, <laughs> is really a way of pointing the finger and saying, actually, do you know what, you are a lot more powerful than drop the act, if you like, stop playing the victim. Um, you have all of this cultural power, this immense power in society, and, and you have to own it. But I think for, for our side, if you like, of the debate as well, I think it's also important to have a reckoning and be honest with ourselves about quite how powerful and how influential um, these woke ideas have become. Mm -hmm. I don't think by that, you know, I think really, really important distinction to make. I don't think they've become popular with the mass of the population. I don't think they have validity with the population at large. But I do think that within the key institutions within society, this way of thinking now dominates. And, and I think it's 
important for all of us to be very honest about that and to really have a kind of moment of reckoning as to how far we've come, because I think it would be quite easy for us to bury our heads in the sand a little bit and just kind of hope that this is all, you know, somebody like Elon Musk again is going to come in and take over and everything's going to be hunky-dory. I don't think that's true, you know, and if, if anybody's really thinking that, I think sadly they're very disillusioned. But, you know, I think no, certainly the book, I hope, is not depressing. I'm not depressed. Um, I think that we're, we are in a more powerful position to challenge woke than ever before. And I think we've already um, touched upon one of the key ways to do that, which is through freedom of speech, to actually have the arguments out, to challenge continuously to refuse to kowtow to the vocabulary, to this way of thinking. Um, but I think the other major, major thing is democracy. You know, the more woke comes up against people, it never, ever, ever, ever wins. You know, you look at everything from like changing street names to knocking down statues to even politicians standing for election. As soon as woke is put before the people, the people win and woke loses. So I think it's kind of beholden upon us to push for more democracy, more free speech. You know, I'd see those two things as very much connected in as many different areas of life as possible so that we're really shining the spotlight on um, what woke is doing to our society, the influence it's having. They would love nothing more than for all of these discussions to take place behind closed doors, um, for, for things just to be presented to the public as a fait accompli. You know, this is the way it is. This is the law. Th these are the rules. And I think the more we can actually say, no, that's not good enough. You know, you, you don't make decisions behind closed doors. We put all of this to the public at every possible opportunity. We put the, the kind of disinfectant of sunlight on woke thinking whenever we possibly can, knowing that it just does not stand up to that democratic scrutiny, not, not at all, never, never has and never will. Yeah. And the book is not depressing at all. <laughs> I actually found it incredibly inspiring. If you want to understand what wokeness is and how to argue against it, it is absolutely an essential read. Joanna, thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special live edition of The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you enjoyed my discussion with Joanna Williams, then make sure you get yourself a copy of How Woke Won. You can order yours now by going to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop.